Hello, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. Today, I sat down with Ben Wittes, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and co-founder and editor-in-chief of Lawfare Blog. He is the author of numerous books and articles on issues related to law, security, privacy, military detention, and technology proliferation. In our conversation, Ben explained how liberty and security are not always in tension, how we might think about the government's surveillance activities, and why technology makes this moment in the history of the world both exciting and terrifying. Well, thank you, Ben, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is the inaugural Brookings Cafeteria podcast, and I think it's fitting because, as far as I understand it, you are the only Brookings scholar who runs your own podcast. Well, let me start with, uh, with a note from history. Benjamin Franklin wrote, Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. In a post on Lawfare blog, you explained the context and meaning of the quote and said that it does not mean what people think it means, that Franklin was not, in fact, suggesting a zero-sum trade-off between the two values. How should we think about this quote, if at all, in today's context? Well, so, you know, one, one way to think about it is just to take the words and read them the way they seem to be relevant to modern society, which is, I think, the way people tend to read it. But I was very interested in the question of where the quote came from. And um, the answer to that question was very striking because, uh, first of all, it's not a quote from the revolutionary period. It's, it's actually a quote from somewhat before that when um, during the French and Indian War when, when Franklin was uh, a, you know, a member of the state assembly or the, uh, the, the, um, the colonial assembly in Pennsylvania. And they were trying to fund um, uh, security operations on the frontier against Indian attacks. And Franklin was annoyed at the propensity of the governor for uh, reasons related to his political patronage in, in, in Britain to um, veto uh, fund, uh, funding for frontier defense because they involved taxing of the Penn family lands. And um, what Franklin was saying in that was that so the, the Penn family had offered a lot of money if the, the assembly would acknowledge that it didn't have the right to tax them. And okay. Franklin was describing that as a trade, you know, as they would you would sell for a little safety, for a little bit of money from the Penn family for safety, you'd sell your right to legislate. And he thought that was really contemptible. Um, so if you translate that into modern times, it only seems to mean almost the opposite of what we now quote the thing to mean, which is not this great tension between liberty and government power. But Franklin was kind of arguing that liberty, uh, he wanted liberty through government power, that is the power of the legislature that he was a part of to um, tax, to, uh, to govern. And so I, I think of it as a, as a, as a cautionary tale in, um, you know, we tend to think of liberty and security as intention, but what Franklin saw them as quite aligned. He wanted the liberty to legislate in the interest of Pennsylvania's okay. security. In Obama's press conference on August 9th, he seemed to suggest again that the two values are intention. When he talked about uh, reforms concerning the National Security Agency and data collection and the Patriot Act and setting up a foreign intelligence surveillance court, he said, quote, 
I think we can provide greater assurances that the court is looking at these issues from both perspectives, security and privacy. So specifically, we can take steps to make sure civil liberties concerns have an independent voice, unquote. Is Obama repeating that liberty versus security dichotomy? Yes. Um, now, look, I don't mean to say that they, security and liberty are never in tension with one another. They are sometimes in tension with one another. But they're not um, pervasively and always in tension. And, um, you know, if you want to maximize liberty, the optimal amount of NSA surveillance is not zero, right? Because NSA right. surveillance enables the government to protect us from all sorts of actors that want to threaten our liberty. Um, and so people are too quick, and I, I do think the president's rhetoric sometimes partakes of this, too quick to set these two up in, in real opposition to one another. If liberty and security were hopelessly in conflict with one another, then the most secure place in the world should be um, North Korea. Okay. And the freest place in the world should be Somalia because uh, it sure doesn't have any security. But that make you know, people grin when you say that because they're obviously not, you know, you need a measure of both for either to exist meaningfully at all. Right. Neither place is on my list of locations to visit ever. Uh, either for reasons because you want greater security or because you want greater liberty. Exactly. Uh, from your online biography, I learned that you are writing a book about data and technology and their implications for security, following up with this, this theme. One of your arguments, as I understand it, is that much of what we think we know about privacy, liberty, security, and threat is wrong. What do we think we know, and why is it wrong? Well, so, so a lot of what we've just been talking about is actually a feature of the book. And um, look, the book is about um, the radical dissemination and proliferation of highly empowering technologies to people, individuals, small groups. And similarly, the radical dissemination of information and data about individuals all over the globe. Um, and what my co-author and I argue, this is a book that I'm writing with, with Gabby Bloom up, up at Harvard, um, what we argue is that these, first of all, these two trends are very closely related to mm -hmm. one another and that the individual as a result of them is both dramatically more powerful than individuals have ever been before, so powerful as to potentially cause strategic threats to states, um, but also radically vulnerable in a way that individuals were never vulnerable before, you know. And, in the, in up until the advent of modern technologies, you really had to be within shooting distance of somebody in order to very directly harm them. And now you can kill or attack or do other forms of violence that we don't really have names for yet to people at great intercontinental distance. And, and that's a new thing in the history of the world. Um, and so the book is sort of a meditation on... Uh, how you govern a world of what we call many-to-many -many threats and many-to-many -many defenses. Um, now, my basic proposition is that in that sort of a world, it is very wrong to think about our liberty and our security as 
uh, fundamentally in tension with one another. They are more often than not in that environment highly, highly interrelated to one another in a positive sense. That is, that is to say, you will not be meaningfully free in that world if you fear attack from any point of the globe. And similarly, you will not be uh, meaningfully secure in that world if you're not able to exercise uh, safely basic freedoms that we expect. And so the, the, the questions of governance of that world are interesting and different and complicated and are sort of basically the, you know, that's, that's the sort of general right. parameters of the subject of the book. Can you put that in the context of, of a major recent story, the Edward Snowden case, uh, and also his revelations that the government has ordered Verizon uh, to render all telephony metadata on U.S. citizens and people think we're all being spied on. Can you talk about your paradigm in this context? Right. So, look, you want the, 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 the question of how much surveillance you want in the world to optimize liberty and safety uh, has always been a very hard question. But in a world in which um, there is, uh, you know, a, an inordinate number of people who threaten us and actors and government actors who are potentially threatening and our data is all over the place. That, comp that question is, is, is actually dramatically more complicated. And my, my argument would be that you want, you, you should think of some of these platforms on which data is being distributed and data is being trans, transferred and, and shared uh, as very much like uh, city streets. Um, and you say, well, how much surveillance do you want in city streets? And the answer is, you know, you surely don't want a, a panopticon where everybody is being watched all the time. On the other hand, we do know that when you have no patrolling of city streets, things get very, very dangerous. And you get what, you know, you call what we think of as bad neighborhoods, right? What are the ways that you really improve uh, lower crime in really bad neighborhoods? One of the ways you do that is by patrolling public spaces. Now, we don't tend to call that surveillance. We tend to call it nice, friendly words like community-oriented policing or right. something else, right? Um, screening, um, cop on the beat, right? And so we have very nice words for it, but they amount to surveillance of public spaces. Um, and, and what I would say is, by and large, when you create giant new platforms of human activity that people need to use safely, you maximize freedom in the same way you do in the public, uh, on the streets, by having enough patrolling that people feel safe using the infrastructure, but not so much patrolling that people feel watched at every moment um, in a way that's oppressive. Now, how you design that sort of principle into an architecture of surveillance on things like, you know, telephony and the internet is a very complicated set of questions. But I think broadly speaking, that's the principle, right? You wanna, mm -hmm. you wanna think of it like the playground in the bad neighborhood. You want it to be safe enough for the kids to play on, but not safe for, you know, to become an open air drug market. 
So people should not worry that the NSA is listening in on their conversations about grandma, but the NSA is then exercising its powers to what end? Well, so so look, if the NSA is listening into people's conversations with grandma and grandma is not a foreign terrorist, um, people should absolutely worry about that, right? You want an architecture in which people have confidence that their conversations with grandma are secure, but also confidence that the same architecture that allows them to have that conversation with grandma is not being used to attack them. Um, and so, you know, that, that means there's a big role for the NSA in patrolling that network. But you don't want it patrolled in a way that makes you think that you're being having your conversations with grandma listened to, and not just right. that it thinks that you don't want that, right? So it's it's a it, it's a very complicated architectural, technical, and legal dance. And one of the things we try to do and lay out in the book is what the principles are in which we tend to think of platform surveillance as legitimate, and what principle and when we tend to think of platform surveillance as illegitimate and oppressive. And we, we think we've distilled some sort of basic, basic conditions in which we tend as a society to embrace it and circumstances in which we tend not to embrace it. Your colleague, Jack Goldsmith, recently wrote on the Lawfare blog, and it's ironic, I think, that the revelations by Edward Snowden about the NSA surveillance activities quote, might one day be seen to have paved the way to broader NSA powers. In light of what you were talking about in terms of confidence, how can you reconcile the, the two movements? Well, so, you know, Jack should probably, you know, Jack has very developed thoughts on this uh, subject, and I, I certainly don't speak for him. But let me, you know, one of one of Jack's theses over time, and he wrote a whole book about this, has been that public debate and constraint that the public debate produces in the exercise of robust national security powers has a legitimating effect um, that allows those powers to continue and often to broaden. Um, and so, for example, you know, the Supreme Court acted to rein in and impose judicial review on detention at Guantanamo. And that actually in the long run strengthened the detention policies at Guantanamo. It didn't weaken them. And so you can hypothesize that something similar is going to happen here where we have these revelations. The result is a debate. And then as the president said on Friday, you know, let's get legislation and rein it in a little bit, right? And then you rein it in a little bit. But the result of that is that you've legitimized the 95%. You've shaved off, the, you've shaved off some small corner of it and authorized the rest in a very overt way following a public debate. And that has a way of entrenching it um, and legitimizing it. Okay. Let me, let me turn back to history in an attempt to come back to the present. Uh, you and Ritika Singh contributed a chapter on James Madison, presidential power, and civil, civil liberties during the War of 1812 to a volume about the contemporary meaning of that conflict titled What So Proudly We Hailed. In it, you wrote about the fourth president's actions not taken, not taken to squelch internal dissent. 
and I'll read the passage here. Madison did somewhat less than he could have done. The typical wartime president, to one degree or another, does more. Sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a lot more. Our image of the president in wartime is one of a president who pushes the envelope. Madison sealed his envelope without even filling it completely, let alone overstuffing it. I love that metaphor, and it leads me to wonder, what has President Obama done with his envelope? That's a really interesting question. So first of all, let me say that Madison is unique in the presidency in wartime. And we conclude that essay by noting, A, that no subsequent president has followed Madison's lead. Um, you know, you can say that's bad or you can say it's good, but there's a reason for it. And the reason for it is that public expectations of the presidency or the, that the president will do everything he can in the context of war. And when you're, and Madison didn't do everything he can, could. In fact, he tolerated the idea of a secession convention, then the presence of a secession convention right. among the New England states in the middle of the war. And no president, you know, has has followed that lead of tolerating that kind of, you know, frankly treasonous activity in, right. in, in the context of warfare. Um, and so the the question of whether it is a good thing that he left the envelope unfilled or a bad thing is actually an interesting and complicated question that I kind of scratch my head and go back and forth about. Um, Obama has been quite robust in his exercise of presidential power. Um, he's been much more energetic than a lot of people who voted for him expected him to be. And frankly, that a lot of people who didn't vote for him expected him to be because his rhetoric as a candidate was very Madisonian. Um, And like many presidents who have, you know, railed against presidential power and then found themselves exercising it, he has realized that he will be held accountable for the things that he could have prevented and didn't act much more than he will be held accountable for the things that he did a little too much of, you know, and if we eventually, um, and we forgive presidents for their petty little excesses, you know, Roosevelt rounded up the Japanese Americans in California during World War II, and we remember him as one of the great presidents in American history with that asterisk, right? But it is an asterisk. It's not the sentence. Um, And, um, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and he's remembered as the greatest president or one of the very greatest presidents. Exactly. So, you know, we th- there's there aren't really examples in the other direction where 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 we we are very forgiving of presidents who did less than they could have. And Madison presided over a war in which the White House burned to the ground. Um and at the hands of the British. At the hands of the British, you know, and so the question in that context of whether you should have done, whether he should have done more than he did, is an interesting question. And and you know I think there are things, there are very few big big things that you can say. Well, Obama should have done this and didn't. And so he certainly did not leave, has not left the envelope unstuffed. Now, whether you think he has overstuffed the envelope and exceeded his powers. 
That, of course, goes to the question of what your substantive views of the scope of executive power is, um, as well as the scope of Congress's power to authorize the president to do things that he might not otherwise be authorized to do. I have a capacious understanding of these two powers. And so no, nothing that Obama has done in the way of exercise of presidential powers makes me suck my breath in and <laughs> say, you know, he's in Roosevelt land here or he's in Abraham Lincoln land or even he's in George W. Bush land where some of the exercises were, particularly in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, more, you know, significantly more um, aggressive. Um, that said, there are a lot of people who disagree with me and, you know, and to those who say, you know, hey, he, he came in promising to be Madison and he's been a little bit more George Bush-like than James Madison-like, that's certainly true. And, and, you know, it's a question of your comfort level with that. I always wonder what happens to candidate for president when he says we should roll back the excesses of the previous administration and then when he becomes president, it's, at, it's as if he's handed the real intelligence briefing and then all of a sudden starts to do things that we did not expect him to do. So that is certainly true. And in Obama's case, there's another effect as well, which is that the excesses of the Bush administration had largely been rolled back by the time Obama took office. You know, the, the, the Bush administration was really more than one administration with respect to presidential power and civil liberties in wartime. Well, one was the administration between 2001 and 2004. And then in the second term, uh, they rolled things back very substantially. And some of that was because of internal pressures within mm -hmm. the administration. And some of that was changed circumstances. And so by the time Obama took office in a way that many of his supporters really had not chosen to notice, a lot, not all, but a lot of the work had already been done. And um, so he continued that process of scaling back some of the excessive claims of the Bush administration to a much more sustainable long-term place. Um, but that work, a lot of the work was already in process or had already happened. Okay. Let's go back to the book that you're working on, wherein you've described this moment in the history of the world, a moment wherein technology empowers us and makes us vulnerable as both exciting and terrifying. Explain what you mean by that. Well, so look, a world in which you can get um, you know, a few million of your closest friends to jointly write an encyclopedia in real time. That's an incredibly exciting moment. You know, um, a world in, that's the same moment in which um, we have rampant cyber attacks all over the world, right? And which, in which you're mm -hmm. unable to preserve your privacy because your data is not secure and not secure from foreign threats, not secure from domestic threats, not secure from crime, not secure from intelligence services, you know, simply not secure. Um, a world in which a high school student can um, build robots is an incredibly exciting world, right? And, and there are, you know, robotics teams in high schools now that do incredible things. Um, 
that's also a world in which some of those kids are going to grow up and do awful things with robots. Um, because just like if you distribute the power to use firearms uh, all over the world, which we've done. 3D printing technology. Right. Oh, I, well, that, that's an even, I, I just mean the power to own firearms, which, right. we, which we wrote into our constitution 200 years ago. Um, you know, most people will use them for hunting and sports and, and military training and all sorts of things that we consider socially acceptable. And we'll also have a world where, there, where there'll be school shootings and street crime. You know, those are related things. And, you know, the power to um, order machines around and get them to do things is a power that some people will abuse and will abuse in very dramatic ways. I mean, think about a world of driverless cars, which, which are already on the road in some states, and then think about what you could do if you could cyber attack them. Um, that's not an exciting prospect, no, right? Um, a world in which um, people with relatively little training can do very substantial genetic engineering um, is a really exciting world for the treatment of disease. It's also a not so exciting world for the creation of disease and the propagation of disease, which you know, some people unfortunately do want to do. And so, you know, when you give, you know, enormous powers, including powers of lethality, to millions and millions and millions of people, A, you get a flowering of human creativity, and B, you also get a flowering of human creativity in violence. And I, I think we, that is the history of technology uh, you know, both fortunately and unfortunately. And it is, I'm sure, the future of these radically empowering technologies that we are producing. You and your colleagues have developed many of these ideas about liberty and security in your Lawfare blog, which can be found at lawfareblog.com. You also focus on military detention policy, Guantanamo, targeting U.S. citizens who are terrorist suspects abroad, and more. Lawfare blog went live almost exactly three years ago. Where do you think it will go in the coming months and years, and what additional topics might it cover? Well, so Lawfare is devoted uh, you know, to the serious discussion of what we call hard national security choices. It's, a, um, it's focused on legal questions, um, but the legal questions and the philosophical questions and the policy questions are sometimes hard to discern from one another. So it will go wherever the conversation goes, you know, in terms of the hard questions that we are facing and that we have to bring law to bear on as a society, um, both domestically and internationally, um, in terms of what powers we can and cannot and will and will not use to counter threats. Um, you know, that you're quite right over the course of the life of the site that has changed. I mean, three years ago, we were talking mostly about detention and um, Guantanamo. We don't talk so much about that anymore. Not that it never but, comes up. But, but it's that, off the radar. It's not just off the radar. The issues are legally are largely resolved at this point. Um, not completely, but largely. Um, the you know, at the same time, we have an enormous amount of flux in certain targeting questions that you raise. And we now have, not just with respect to U.S. citizens, but, you know, when 
when are you going to hit the enemy with you know a drone far away from a field of active combat operations? Those questions are very much in flux and in play. And thanks to Mr. Snowden, we now have a very vibrant national debate over the contours of intelligence operations that were until three months ago and um, quite secret. And so, you know, the issues don't stop coming. Um, there has not been a time since 2001 when national security legal policy was not at the front and center of some aspect of the American national debate. And we're, you know, our commitment is to have serious conversations about that stuff. These are serious and kind of scary issues. And you spend all day here at Brookings thinking about them, thinking about security, liberty, drone strikes, terrorists, legal issues in the war on terrorism. What do you do to let that go? I kick teenagers. Um, kick teenagers. Yeah. So I, I have a sort of pathological addiction to martial arts. Um, and I, I um, generally go from here uh, to... Uh, either a Taekwondo or Aikido studio and, you know, let off steam, uh, throwing people, getting thrown by people, uh, kicking okay. and punching them. That would explain the, the large black belt hanging in your office. <laughs> well, I suppose so, yeah. Well, Ben, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. This was fun. To learn more about Ben and his research, visit brookings.edu and also lawfareblog.com.